Lord, it's time for Animation Celery. Crunchy conversations about classic cartoons. Head them up, move them out. Power stride and ready to ride. I'm the one guy, Micah. I'm a better guy, Matsy. Well, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> this is the podcast where we watch cartoons as assigned by each other. And then we come back and then we talk about them, which is what we're going to do now. And this week we're doing some shorts. I told Micah that he had to watch a Disney cartoon called Donald's Crime and my Mary, Mary, very favorite Mary melodies. <gasps> the Dover Boys at Pimento University or the Rivals of Rockford Hall. <sighs> and he made me watch a Tom and Jerry thing called Of Feline Bondage, which isn't what you think. Yeah. And some called... The Blue Racer, specifically His and Hers. But first, Micah, tell us how we go make some money. Well, we're going to go uh, make some money off of one ring. Are you a hands-off supervillain that does all your best work from the chair or throne? One ring covers all your surveillance needs with our unbelievably broad network of hidden cameras. Use it to nullify Chief Quimby's exhaustive efforts to disguise himself. Or just check out what the babysitter does after you've left. Our patented Palantir technology can broadcast your European castle, skull-shaped volcano, really any evil abode from which you plot. Now, can one ring find out superhero secret identities? <laughs> well, anyway, act today. Slip on a ring of power and submit to ever-watching Sauron. And the great deal of 24-hour villainous remote monitoring. It's even got a camera on my cat, apparently. <laughs> it never occurred to me that Dr. Claw's ability to watch everything that was going on negated Chief Quimby's disguises. Yes, pointedly, uh, after Chief Quimby's blown up, it pulls out from Dr. Claw's monitor of him in the trash can or yeah. mailbox or whatever. Yeah. No, I, I totally realize that. And it's just like... It's one of those things that just there's so many stupid things that happen in cartoons when you're a kid yeah. that, you know, 30 years later, someone describes it and you're like, hey, yeah. He just looks silly to Dr. Claw. <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember <laughs> I remember um, my friend who initially told me all about uh, Inspector Gadget was quite, uh, <laughs> quite amused by the one time that uh, Chief Quimby hid in a toilet. <laughs> and he 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 made careful mention of the fact that uh, the chief had brown spots on his face in that shot. Oh, my God. <laughs> Whew. So moving on. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, M&M design changes. Is that something we want to talk huh. about? <laughs> <laughs> Man. They're, oh my god! I I looked at these two images and were like, "What changed?" Yeah, because well, they, they look almost identical. Yes, uh, there's more shoelaces. <laughs> there's that. Here, I'll post this thing here so you can have a look, and we can. And everyone can listen to my cat try to get my attention. In the meanwhile, okay, yeah, M and M's. There's yeah. the uh, comparison. They're, so like. The, the big fur, I bet if they didn't mention 
that they were changing the designs that it would just because they've changed over the years anyway right yeah and nobody's paid it much attention but now there's <laughs> there is a bit of a uh i i think the one that gets them really wild is the green one well that's the only like i'm looking now and it's like that's really kind of the only one there that there's a major difference which is that she's not in high heels yeah even well, the other female one is still in high heels. Yeah, but they're shorter heels now. Mm. That's true, yeah. She's more of a business lady than a temptress. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I can't judge because, like, that kind of spice is part of what, <laughs> what makes being a kid with cartoons fun. <laughs> I guess. But, I, for some people out there... The green M&M is their boo, I guess, right? So... I suppose. Oh, yeah. the legs aren't... Uh... Oh. Oh. I see what they did. Oh, so it's they sort of like made... pants. Yeah. Well, they made it so that they're not... Uh, human white. Oh. The... Yeah. I guess so. The, and the blue has got white uh, sleeves and pant legs, I guess. Yeah, I think they're I think their limbs are like either white or like a weird pale shade of like peachish. Yeah. I, OK, so this is this is low key racial reckoning where the <laughs> the M&Ms aren't the M&Ms aren't all white now. Well, I also thought that one of the things that. I, I think they've they've not forcefully said it, but like maybe the green one isn't cis female too. Oh. Or maybe that's huh. just some things people are intimating from <laughs> from it. I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know. It almost it kind of falls under like who cares. <laughs> well, yeah, I, and, I've said before that one of the um, one of the um, telltale signs of a female character. When when you have a cartoon character with no other anatomy to go by is mm. eyelashes. And it looks right. like they've kind of the eyelashes are still there, but they're like less pronounced. Hmm. So Again, maybe some people are taking that as, oh, must be trans. Right, right. The, the other prominent one that's come out lately is uh, Minnie Mouse has been given a tracksuit, I guess. Oh, yeah. A pantsuit. Yeah. Pantsuit, yeah. I, I heard about this. Yeah, I saw it and I think it's fine. And she's kind of a blank slate. So, I mean, well, Minnie Mouse's most pronounced personality trait was being unreasonable. So, hmm. you know, I, I well, I mean, it's not like she needs to have one specific outfit. Like very few Disney characters. When is the last time that Mickey Mouse was in just red pants with white buttons in yeah. anywhere other than merchandising? Logos. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So Minnie, you know, if Minnie's not wearing like a skirt that barely qualifies as a skirt and really bulbous frilly panties that look like some kind of bulbous <laughs> frilly diaper, I think that's fine. You know? Now that you've put it that way, I guess they have taken the sex out of her. 
<laughs> um, yeah, and there's listen, there's there's plenty of sexy characters out there for all you perverts. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry for anyone who lost Minnie Mouse. <laughs> you know, the real era, the real era of trampiness, I think, was rare video games. <laughs> well, not just rare video games, but like everything out of that era, right? So like Crash Bandicoot had Tana and mm. Donkey Kong had Candy Kong. And just Woof. like char character designs that were just like blatantly, you know, they say that they, they'd model them after Pamela Anderson. And it really shows. Oh, well, I mean, she was wearing a pink one-piece bikini. Yeah. I guess it doesn't count as a bikini if it's one-piece, but you know what I mean. Right, right, right. Hmm. Well, anyway, yeah. I think that that's probably enough air for that, right? Um, sure. Yeah. That's okay. that's <laughs> that's more than the M&Ms deserve. <laughs> not even, like, usually, they're not a candy I buy for myself. I'll have them if somebody else is serving them, but yeah. Um, it's got to be the peanut butter ones. Mm. Or maybe peanut, but other the, than that. The, yeah, the peanut butter one's the nervous orange one, whose oh, body yeah. is smaller now, it looks. Anyway. Um, okay, so I, I have some big news here. Huh. Um, now, remember way back when we were celebrating Father's Day with a goofy movie? Yeah. I brought up the notion that what is Pete exactly? Because oh, everybody yeah. in Goof Troop... Okay, now, the movie has a cameo with, with Mickey and Donald, but I'll treat them as the outlier, right? That everybody in Goof Troop is a dog. But Pete, way, way back, started as a bear and then became a cat as the natural enemy of uh, Mickey Mouse. Right. And now he's ambiguous. Mm -hmm. But in Goof Troop, I contend he's a dog. Okay. Uh, and I have read people saying... That not only is Pete a, a cat still, but Peg and Pistol and I guess PJ are all cats as well. That really doesn't run true to me. Okay, so. No, I don't buy that. Okay, I found some evidence. Okay. I was watching a scene from an extremely goofy movie. And this is said to PJ. Whoa, you're swinging with some pretty cool canines there, Papa Dog. Hmm. He's a dog. That's proof right there. He's a dog. Okay. And by extension, by extension, Pete is a dog. Yeah. I mean, the the only thing I would counter that is if is, you know, calling somebody dog could be like a, you know, a, a slang term of, I don't know, endearment or just, you know, hey, dog. But... The no, fact that they specifically mentioned canines. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. Like, I will accept that evidence. Mm hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> that important business is done. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one more thing for me. I continue to watch some Generation 1 Transformers. Uh huh. And, uh, you know, just kind of like whatever, <clears throat> whatever YouTube shows me. Puts an episode in front of me, I'll watch it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so last time I was talking about Constructicons, we yep. got another another Constructicon heavy episode. Uh, the one where they trick um, uh, Hoist and oh shoot, what's his name? What's his name? What's his name? Anyway, they, they trick they trick a couple of Autobots to build a uh, solar power tower as okay. like fellow builders. <laughs> anyway, the. 
the side plot, not long, anyway, the side plot is not even really a side plot, but just some background stuff. Uh, the Autobots have a basketball game. So, yeah, I thought, all right, right? <laughs> and oh, Optimus, yeah. funny enough, he's such a square, he can't get any of the terms right, which is amazing considering he's got a great intellect, right? But he... He says the wrong thing, you know, I'm going to make a layoff, you know, or whatever, right? Am I <laughs> drooling correctly, Spike? <laughs> it's dribbling, Optimus. And, uh, you know, I think I've actually seen that clip relatively recently. Yes. He's so good at it, though. Like, <laughs> you know, there's uh, usually positionally the big man is not good at dribbling, right? You need like your you need your guards or your small forward to handle the ball a little more. Optimus is great at dribbling and he even can spin a human sized basketball on the tip of his finger. You know, that was in the back of my head the whole time you're explaining this. I'm like, they're really big, right? Well, basketball would have to be pretty small. Well, when the Autobots are having their little intramural, they're playing with a big basketball and a really high hoop. Okay. But still pretty amazing they showed it to me but the funny thing is that um i watched a bunch of episodes so i wasn't sure which one it is so i I did a little googling to try to find out and the uh tf wiki has a whole page dedicated to basketball (laughs) well sure i guess well there's enough basketball in transformers that they (laughs) needed a page for it (laughs) so i think i gotta track these down like (laughs) It's 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 various series, right? That, that like it seems like uh, at least half of the series have one uh, one basketball episode, and uh, in one case, um, crazy millionaire Mark Cuban, who uh, owns the Dallas Stars, has a commercial where he hires Optimus Prime, probably the movie one, for his basketball game, but Optimus instead of playing it normally like he does in Generation 1, fires the ball out of his blaster, and he stomps on the ball. <laughs> just just because it's going to drive me and possibly other people crazy, the Dallas Stars is the hockey team. The basketball, oh, oh, basketball team. Mavericks. Basketball team is the, the Dallas Mavericks. Mavericks. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's my, it's my Canadian again. Anyway, um, yeah, that's what I got. All that useful stuff. <laughs> it's good to... It's good to keep up on, you know, minor things like that. Sometimes, you know, some weeks aren't as eventful as others. My week was really boring. I yeah. work was such a hassle that I kind of came home and just played video games rather than looking for cartoons. Now, mm-hmm. that's not 100 percent true because I did have some ideas for things that I wanted to watch, but they fell through in one way or another. Um, thing one is YouTube was showing me. Well, not like the thumbnails were coming up. I didn't watch them because I didn't want to be spoiled. But there was a lot of videos on YouTube's YouTube's <laughs> all the, the YouTube's. YouTube's yeah of um, various clips of the Cuphead show. All right. And that made me go look at Netflix and couldn't find it. And I'm thinking like with my history on Netflix, this seems like something that should have been surfaced to me immediately. This doesn't seem like something I should have to enter into their search bar. Well, the reason is that it doesn't actually come out until February 18th. So Ah, so. my plan of watching the Cuphead show and reporting on it fell apart. Then we got a tweet from 
good friend uh, Moss Lion. Yes. Who said, have either of you had a chance to see the Marvel series Hit Monkey? I spotted it on Disney Plus Star and wondering if it's any good. I'm always up for a Japanese macaque seeking revenge or any monkey, yeah. really. Um, so I searched for this and couldn't find it. And I, I, as I tweeted back to him that I initially typed hot monkey, which was a completely different set of search results. It's a Freudian slip. That's what that is. Yeah. Yeah. More like a slip of the I and O keys are right next to each other. And I've typed them so much that the letters have worn off. Okay. Anyway, anyway, um, just before we started recording, as I was browsing around for something else, I found it under the name Marvel's Hit Monkey. Mm. So, long story short, I haven't watched it because I couldn't find it. And then at the last minute, I found it. But I did watch the trailer for it. Have you seen okay. the trailer for it or anything? Because you have Disney Plus. No, not yet. Um, I figured we'd set it up for next week. But uh, I did look a little bit into... The comic history, just a little bit. Hmm. Based on the trailer that I saw, it seems like the idea of this is that it was some hitman who w- went to Asia in some fashion, and I guess he was killed. And for some reason, his like ghost is bound to this monkey. Hmm. And I think the monkey's whole family or troop or whatever was killed I don't know, by poachers or whatever. Okay. And so, so now it's this, this monkey, uh, who is bound to a ghost going out to murder people. Hmm. Okay. I understand this cross. Well, not the series probably, but the uh, comic crosses over with Deadpool a little bit. I, I could imagine. It seems like Hmm. the, the zany side of, um, Marvel, you know, in much the same way Disney has this one like offshoot crew that made the Emperor's New Groove and Lilo and Stitch while they were making, you know, uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules and stuff. Right. I guess Marvel has this other uh, faction that does Deadpool and Squirrel Girl and Hit Monkey. Well... I don't know. Who can tell the difference anymore? Marvel gets kind of silly, but yeah. And I, as I'm saying it out loud, I just realized that Disney owns Marvel. So yeah. Gets really fuzzy when you start talking about big hero (sighs) six. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, it reminds me of, uh, you ever seen that meme about, uh, hitman monkey takes no pleasure in his work. Um, It's got, it's got like a guy with his face, uh, half submerged in like a, in a pond. And a monkey mm. grabbing onto his hair, so it looks like the monkey is drowning him. <laughs> I'm, I don't think I have seen that one. Well, the joke <laughs> won't surprise you now, right? But anyway. Well, now I've seen it. Yes, you've seen it in your mind's eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I don't know, that's kind of it. I guess, I guess one other thing that I could mention is that uh, over the last 24 hours, Yacht Club Games... The video uh, game company that made Shovel Knight and mm. proceeded to then make deals to put Shovel Knight in every other video game that has come out since. Yes. Uh, they are now working on their second video game. 
Huh. Well, actually, it's probably their if, third. Well, no, there's yeah. been a few because there's been another Shovel Knight and then another Shovel Knight. Yes. <laughs> and but this is their new one. This is a, a brand new non Shovel Knight game. OK. Uh, it's called Mina the Hollower. And huh. it is it's a it's sort of like if Castlevania was. The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. It's designed in much the same way that Shovel Knight is designed to look like an NES game. Mm -hmm. This is designed to look like a Game Boy Color game. Okay. It's a top-down kind of gothic horror-ish exploration sort of thing Mm. where you play as an inventor mouse with the ability to burrow underground. Huh. From a perspective like classic Zelda, though, huh? Yes. Top down Castlevania. Huh. You got a whip. You got, uh, you know, you, you have a couple of different items that like I watched a little bit and saw you know, her, her Mina throwing an axe and then like getting a drill power up and that had to leave the axe behind. And so she had this drill charge instead. Oh, was going underground be like an x-ray shot then? I'm just thinking about how that it's, looks. It's how it looks is that she jumps and when she lands, she becomes like a little dirt mound Uh, that travels around. Kind of. It it doesn't leave a trail. It's like a single spot to indicate where you are. But then you like you can go under stuff and then pop up somewhere else. Hmm. Uh, So, yeah, so that game is in development. Probably it's on Kickstarter. Uh, Most not so much for the money because they're already making it, but it's more for right. so they can get community feedback and incorporate ideas and stuff. Um, sure. And, you know, based on their history of games, I assume that we'll see this sometime in 2030. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I like, you know what? I like the universe of shovel Knight way more than I like the game. Mm-hmm. I, I love, you know, I, it taps into my mega man love. The idea of there's, these eight themed knights. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, subsequent games add new knights. Like there's like Scrap Knight and Hive Knight. Um, the game they're working on right now is called Shovel Knight Dig. And it has uh, <laughs> a crew of villains called the Hexcavators, which is okay. a great word. And so, yeah, I just love the idea that there's all these knights. I, I own the Shovel Knight Amiibo. I have a lot of Amiibo. Mm. And I, I got the Shovel Knight ones for... Plague Knight, King Knight, and the other one. I think those Mega Man games usually have too um, too limited a viable way of playing them. You know mm. that there's a there's common wisdoms that you fight this guy first because you can beat him with the Mega Blaster, and then you do this guy and that guy and so on. Right? There's yeah. not as much room for self expression as you might like from a classic game. Um, it can. I mean, it depends. I, I remember I played Mega Man 2 so much and I got so good at it that I could, mm-hmm. I could fight the bosses in any order. Huh. Uh, some Mega Man 3 is a lot harder, but, but you're right. Like, you know, if I'm sitting to play, you know, Mega Man 4, it's like, all right, right. let's do Ring Man. And then from Ring Man, I can do... God, what is Ringman? Uh, Ringman is a uh, 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 dust man. And hmm. then, I mean, I could just recite. I like Mega Man a lot. I could recite them all. But um, anyway, yeah, I 
I don't really like the Shovel Knight game very much, but I like the universe of it. And I, I will go along with Yacht Club and see what they make next. All right. Maybe a video game. They'll keep pace with the uh, Cuphead. Or not video game, sorry. Maybe they'll make a, a cartoon. You know what? It's, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, on the one hand, I wouldn't be surprised. But on the other hand, Shovel Knight, one of the interesting things about Shovel Knight is that it was designed so that none of the knights have an obvious gender. And okay. in fact, uh, it allows you to go in in the options and set the gender for all the knights. Oh. And so huh. just from a voice acting perspective... The idea that there is no canonical correct gender for any of the knights. I guess what they could do is they could just decide, uh, you know, Tinker Knight is a girl and so is fririggin', I can't remember the name, Plague Knight, whatever. Oh, they could, have speak- a, they could have a narrator who just yeah. simulates the voice, you know, but being an, an obviously gendered narrator, it wouldn't be obvious what mm. he's trying to portray. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that reminds me something that I wanted to bring up. I, I was mm-hmm. thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about police Academy, the series. <laughs> yes. It stayed with us. Yeah. There was a part in that, that I, I forgot to mention right at the end, Kane has Mona and, yeah. um, Mahoney says something like, let the girl go. And he does. Right. Okay. And it suddenly occurred to me. What would he have said if there was a male hostage? Oh, you're trying to say that what he said, let the boy go? I'm well, the thing is, girl, I mean, girl is a diminutive, diminutive form of female, but it's also like yeah. a casual form. Yes. It's the way that, you know, you would call a woman girl in the same way you would call a man a guy. Right. Yeah. So I understand it from that perspective, but at the same time, like in that particular situation where it's just the one and you're like, oh, just let the girl, the girl. Right. It's really objectifying in a way that doesn't like if it, if the gender (laughs) is opposite, like if it's a man who's a hostage, there is no way to say that that sounds natural. And the fact that it sounds acceptable when you're talking yeah. about a female, it's kind of gross. Well, Mahoney's kind of gross, so... That's true. I mean, there you go. But I, it's it's not limited to Police Academy, though. I just... I want a moratorium on the phrase, let the girl go. Because <laughs> okay. the girl... The girl is not an object. What about, like, with a U? Let the girl go. <laughs> well, if it was being played by Wanda Sykes or something, then maybe. Okay. Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest, and hopefully now we can never talk about Police Academy again. Let's talk about something else. All right. Crime. Still crime. Yeah. yeah. Donald's Crime, directed by Jack King in 1945. Uh, so the basics on this, it's Donald Duck. You all know Donald Duck, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it features his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie as well. So... Right at the title card, I get a laugh right away because of the identical astonished expressions on the shadowed faces of Huey, Dewey, and Louie. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Anyway, as the cartoon starts, 
Donald sings with excitement about his date tonight with Daisy Duck, his steady gal. Um, however, he's a poor planner because he only realizes then that he has no money. He worries, but his internal voice, the raspy opposite of a conscience, tempts him to loot his nephew's piggy bank. And this sets the tone. From the subtle to the cartoony, Donald's turmoil is great to watch. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of my favorite Donald's is from the beginning of Mickey and the Beanstalk. And you see it a little here, too. There's something inherently funny about a sweaty duck. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, okay, so uh, the boys nearly catch their uncle stealing, but he covers by following his internal voice's advice and yelling at the trio to go to bed. The immoral duck tries to pry out the money, but he ends up breaking the ceramic bank. Just then, the boys call Donald up and shame him for not kissing them goodnight. He does, but he feels quite the skunk, and for a moment looks like one, mm. for betraying them. Until he's at the club. There, he and Daisy seriously cut a rug. They dance to big band music that's so intense that it literally melts the horns. And speaking of melting, Daisy gives him such a hot kiss that he's on top of the world at the end of his date. Until that mischievous internal voice slimes him for stealing from his young charges. And uh, in that little uh, dialogue, the monologue in his head, it says, Bank robbery is a federal offense. You know what that means, chum. G-men. <laughs> yeah, one of those things that has floated over my head all this time. Until we uh, recently looked at Gandy Goose and found out what a G-man was. <laughs> it's, it's like a government agent, a copper. Yeah. So, Donald's self-image changes from his sailor-suited outfit to a hoodlum's hat and coat. The noise of a scavenging, scavenging alley cat spooks him further into his paranoid fantasy. He flees. He flees imagined lawmen and come, uh, comes up to a building, jumps through a window, goes up and down an elevator shaft, and then takes a long jump from skyscraper to skyscraper, scrabbling on falling bricks, and then eventually tumbling down a drain pipe to the street. And uh, we looked recently, well, a little while ago, at Roger Rabbit, and it's got kind of like a madcap level of action to it that it's famous for, yes. which is all well and good. But I kind of like it as grounded as this, you know, it's more it's I mean, it's kind of outlandish jumping from skyscraper to skyscraper or whatever. But at the same time, it takes its time and breathes a little bit. Yeah, you can digest this. Yes. Um, so the delusional duck finds his wanted poster, but when he rips it off, it reveals the very same poster, but with a higher bounty. Donald runs in a panic from police and their dogs until in an alleyway, he now sees himself as a convict, and he rattles a door that he sees as his prison door. But in reality, it turns out to be the back door to a restaurant with a sign that calls for a dishwasher. His voice and his situation offer salvation. He can work through the night for money to pay back the triplets. And he does just that, depositing it all into the repaired piggy bank. But... 
when his internal voice mentions that he put in a nickel to spare, the cheapskate Donald Duck tries to shake it back out. And it's then that Huey, Dewey, and Louie catch him and shame him. <laughs> yeah, there you I have, love uh, that he's undone for want of a single nickel. Yeah, so petty that he redeems himself but gets caught anyway. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, the, he put in like, what, a dollar twenty-five or something? And apparently that was enough for a hot time at the dance club. So maybe a nickel goes a long way. I don't I don't know. Earlier on when he broke the bank, the floor was covered in coins. That's true. They could have I mean, all been nickels. Right. Not enough for Scrooge to swim through, but <laughs> still a lot of coins. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, this was what did I say, fifty six? Um 45, 45, you mm. get like my mom would have been really tiny at that time. But when she talks about being a kid, she talks about like spending very little change to get into a movie. And then you got a big popcorn and a, like a giant chocolate bar, and, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My yeah. And she she's talking about like a quarter. Right. So my mom has a similar story, which is really dates things in a lot of ways mm -hmm. um, that her dad would give her money to go down to the store and buy him cigarettes. Yeah. And, and mm. he could, and she was free to keep the change and use it on whatever. And she, you know, she would say, you could buy a lot of candy for the little amount of change. And, you know, there's a number of things about that situation that are baffling in 2022. Like, you know, some eight-year-old little girl comes in and wants a pack of sportsmen's, and you're like, okay, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> True enough. As for, like, the denominations, there's also differences in the Canadian and U.S. dollar. So. Well, that's true, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, it depends on where in the U.S., right? Because some, yeah. like, big cities in the U.S. are just like Canada, except the dollar is more expensive. Hmm. Um, same numbers, bigger dollar. But... Uh, when I was a kid visiting my grandparents, I remember there was a deal like the, uh, uh, the local McDonald's had ice cream cones for a quarter. Oh, so wow. yeah, it was like a big promo. Right. But still Not and bad. nowadays, nowadays you're thrilled if anything costs less than $2. <laughs> yeah. Especially ice cream. Like it's weird. That's a weird example because like ice, you know, something like a blizzard at Dairy Queen is like seven bucks. Yeah. 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 But anyway, I guess you can have a hot night on the town for, I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have a follow up. I'll go back and count and estimate the denominations of all the coins that <laughs> splattered all over to guess how much money he had. I think there was at least five dollars there. But. I'm just I'm just going by the number that he was reciting as he was putting it back in. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. I, I like this cartoon. And obviously you do, too, since the. You you recommended it under the auspice of it being a good one. Well, yeah, I I had some vague memories of it. I saw that it was nominated for an Academy Award. It didn't win. I don't think it won. Mm. I think it I think it was one of the nominees. But yeah, Disney cartoons. I don't know if they they have such a a different style to them. Like maybe every you know maybe a Looney Tunes and a Tom and Jerry and a Disney all have a totally different style. To them where you're not, 
you watch enough cartoons, you kind of see the gags. Like, even if it's a different variation of a gag, like, oh, somebody gets something stuck in their head and they pull it off and their head is the shape of the thing they pulled off, right? Yeah. Like, Disney cartoons have such a different batch of gags to them. You know, I think that's partly our mentality, because I was thinking about this. We've mentioned on the show before that um, we used to watch cartoon segments, half-hour segments, that would just be anything. It would be Popeye and Tom and Jerry and whatever, but never, uh, never classic uh, Disney cartoons. No, Disney had its own show like Disney ever since color, even before, like the wonderful world of Disney or yes, or the, was it the Disney's wonderful world of color? I think it was called. It was like some fantastic thing when they started broadcasting in color. And so all the Disney believe it or not, all the Disney content was siloed in its own thing. You know, it's, it's so that's weird though, right? Because a, like you'd said that you kind of think of Woody Woodpecker or Popeye as being less than mm. because of that, I would think of Disney cartoons as being less than right. Mm. I, I would think of this being like a step behind Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry. But at the same time, as you mentioned, they would be on like the wonderful world of Disney, right? So I would be really excited that they'd have cartoons on at five or six o'clock uh, or conversely, um, utterly crushed when instead it would be some live action thing about like the three lives know, of Thomasina. Plus, yeah. Or, you know, some documentary about animals or oh, uh, yeah. South America or something, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of the other way around where like the the Popeyes and Bugs Bunnies and stuff felt like the run of the mill basic cartoons. But the Disney oh. cartoons were a special event. Oh, you I only get to see, see them on Disney's own thing. Yeah. And you know what's funny, though, is strangely now, I think they're less um, litigious. They're the they police their classic Disney cartoons less, I feel, than Warner Brothers does. Or hmm. or most other properties, actually. Maybe. Like, I mean, this this Donald's crime is just there on YouTube that some yeah. schmo put up. Yeah, you don't have to look very hard. Well, just for classic Disney cartoons in general. Yeah. There's um there is some talk going on about how the the clock is running down on when the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse is going to become public domain. Yeah. I, I don't remember the exact year that Steamboat Willie came out, but it's like a hundred years plus something, I think, or whatever. But so, yeah. So I'm no copyright expert, but it was, uh, I was always under the impression it was 50 years. I think Disney has done some weird legal loophole wrangling to keep it from happening the way it should under mm. law. Like there's, there's some weird, weird loopholes that are starting to run out. Like, I think, ah. I think it's like, that specific character design of Mickey Mouse is going to be public domain. But eh. the version that we all know now as a modern Mickey Mouse will still be a Disney copyright. It would actually be a trademark. I know a bit about this. Um, a copyright is a more expansive, specific work, like a movie. Whereas mm. a trademark is a specific character. So it would be character that would the trademark of the character that would be going into public domain, I guess. Well, it depends. I mean, 
I'm not an expert on this, but yeah. uh, if you have a copyright, it can cover characters. Yeah. And, and the trademark is more about the likeness of the character. Sure, yeah. So as you say, that he looks specifically like this, right? Or And also the implementation of it. So it'll be like logos or characters or uh, phrases. So yeah. um, I'll go back to my example of uh, Fisto from Masters of the Universe. <laughs> that Fisto, the character, is purely theirs, right? Whoever right. currently owns the copyright. Um, but in terms of the trademark and its uses... It's gone in and out because they didn't maintain it. The trade it can get pretty expensive if you uh, maintain a trademark for, you know, to use this as uh, toys, video games, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And it's one of the reasons because I'm on such a Transformers kick recently <laughs> that when they reboot things, it's the reason why they keep reusing old names mm-hmm. is to maintain their trademarks. Oh, sure. So that they keep putting out toys, even though this thing doesn't seem at all like Sideswipe. You know, they've maintained the name and right, any right. other character name. Yeah. Right. Sure. Get, gets a little stupid, in my opinion. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so <laughs> Donald Duck. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting, interesting things I noticed in this, uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie are uh, color-coded red, green, and orange. Mm-hmm. Because growing up with DuckTales, we're used to them being red, blue, and green. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think this is true in the other Donald Duck cartoons, that they're color-coded this way. Furthermore, green would appear to be Dewey's color if we're supposed to read them from left to right as Huey, Dewey, and Louie. (laughs) I don't know. It doesn't matter. They have even less distinction than the original DuckTales series. No kidding. Yeah, there's just three of them. In fact, I think, and sometimes they only have one voice when they all speak together, right? Yes, I, yes, yeah. It's yeah. not even like it's not even one voice triple tracked. No, so it sounds no. like three. It's like one person talking and all three right, mouths right. moving. Yeah. Let's see uh, some of the voices in this. Uh, Clarence Nash is the classic Donald Duck voice. Mm-hmm. So much so, I, I read that he uh, voiced Donald Duck for fifty-five years. Impressive. I mean, it's yeah. a hard voice to imitate. Oh, plenty of people do, but yeah. They um, do, but like, it's not, it's not well, like anybody can just do it. They can do the voice, but they probably can't act, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Sterling Holloway is Donald's internal conflicting voice huh. in this. Yeah. He's, he's also the Stork and Dumbo, adult Flower the Skunk and Bambi. Um, and the narrator and Peter and the Wolf. Now, he is doesn't he the sound origi- like... Is he the original Winnie the Pooh? Hmm, I don't think so. They're similar voices, though, right? Yeah. Like, in, in this, he doesn't sound like himself. Because he's he's rasping, you know? Yeah. G-men. Yeah, which, as a kid, the typical Sterling Holloway voice, I really hated it. Because... <laughs> well, my yeah. my bias was that he just sounded so unmanly I couldn't take him. Yeah, he was like the park ranger. Um yeah. uh the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. That any kind of small voice. Right, right. 
Oh, he was probably Piglet in in Winnie the Pooh, I bet. Yeah, that sounds more true. Yeah. I don't know. One sec. Let's just let's just let's just see what voices Sterling Holloway voiced. Hmm. Oh, he he is Winnie the Pooh actually. Oh, All right there. Cool. Oh yeah, and of course he's a uh, Caw in the Jungle Book. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the Cheshire Cat. Wow. Huh. Well, of course he is. You know when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, I had a pretty good time watching uh, Donald's Crime. It's fun watching Disney things because, like I said, they're so different. They're not, you know, you, you kind of know what to expect from a lot of... You've seen Bugs Bunny and Bugs Bunny and Bugs Bunny, and then a well, Disney pops up and it's like, oh, this is something different. It's funny. There was a little stretch last year where I pushed so many Disney things that I just took a step back and <laughs> made a point of not doing it anymore. <laughs> but... We're back. All right. But not for long. <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll move on to something else. Uh, Tom and Jerry. Yeah, speaking of uh, directors and the like that we review maybe too much. <laughs> yeah, boy. Well, is there such a thing as too muck? Too muck? Too much. Too muck. Too muck Chuch Jones. Yes. And uh, Marich Nubbles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chuch Jones yeah. and Maurice Nubble. Yeah. Uh, this is a Tom and Jerry deal from 1965. It's called Of Feline Bondage, which is a title of a book and movie, which was taken from a passage in an even older book and has nothing to do with what this cartoon is. So we get a stylish billiard ball themed opening credit sequence, which which warped me into thinking that there was going to be more billiards in this than there actually was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Example. It starts with Tom, the cat, harassing Jerry, the mouse, traps him in a can and shakes him up like a cocktail and then rolls him out of the can and against the wall. And as as he rolls <laughs> counterintuitively, Jerry turns into a cube. Now, I was so set on the billiards theme that I thought that this was like him turning into one of those cubes, one of those chalk cubes that you use to like yeah. chalk up the tip of a cue thing. And it wasn't yeah. until much later after I had watched it, as I was watching it a second time, in fact, that I realized that he's actually turning into a die. Like he's mm. he's shaking the can. Well, the can is basically shaking, shaking like a cocktail, but then like shooting him out of it is like dice. And then his right. eyes and nose make a three. Pit. Well, I guess it's not really the way that a three would show up on a die. But anyway. anyway, so it's very cute and it's the most memorable part of his abuse, I think. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so next, it just kind of transitions to Jerry running and he runs up a pule pule cue. I am having a terrible time talking. I keep I keep doing the first syllable of the next word as the last syllable of the word I'm saying. <laughs> We all have our zummy gummy moments. Yeah, yeah. Spoonerisms, if you will. Um, so he runs up a pool cue and onto the cue ball on a pool table where Tom shoots his shot and makes Jerry run for his life from various bouncing balls, which <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why all the balls shot up into the air like that, because that's not the way billiard balls break. But whatever. It's a cartoon. Who cares? Uh, Jerry gets, uh, squashed and flattened and rolled up on an eight ball right into his hole, 
where he's all flat and curly and feels sorry for himself. And then a fairy god mouse appears. And I like her character design. I like the way that she's constantly pushing up her crown. I like the way she mm-hmm. looks. She's a sexy, yeah. sexy June foray. Yeah, well, unt- un- until those social justice warriors warp her. <laughs> um, Give me back my sexy god mouse. <laughs> <laughs> she unflattens Jerry, who then prays to her for help and mimes out the ways Tom has just abused her, which is crazy because... They spend a full minute redoing all of the gags (laughs) that they did in the first minute of this cartoon. Yeah. That is weirdly lazy and waste of time. Do you think so? Kind of. I mean, it's just the same. It's the exact same gags a second time. I'll admit that this cartoon is a lot shorter than you think it is when you watch it again. Boy, right? yeah, I was actually noticing that as I was I'm like glancing at the thing and it's like, it gets to its point and there's like two minutes left. I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, the fairy god mouth, mouth, is sympathetic. Runs up the pule cue. Yeah. Yeah. She <laughs> gives Jerry a potion and despite no one else being around to hear what she says, it's a cartoon, so instructions have to be whispered. Um, mm-hmm. this might be so that they pay June for a less. I don't know. Cause she never really well, says anything. Most, m- most of the time things don't, who does nibbles speaks in Tom and Jerry cartoons. And sometimes the butch, the black mama who runs the house, <laughs> who, who calls Tom Jasper. That always weirded me out. <laughs> we'll, we'll review one of those cartoons in the future. I'm sure. Yeah, sure. All right. Um, anyway, so she tells Jerry what to do, and then they both get evil grins. Mm. He he kisses her hand and thanks, and she disappears, and he runs off excited with his potion. Now, outside the hole, Tom is just hanging out with a piece of cheese on a makeshift fishing line. And Jerry chugs the potion in gross ASMR sound and turns invisible. That's what the potion did. And then Tom then watches quizzically as the cheese magically unties itself and marches into the hole. He looks in the hole to investigate, and then the string lassos his nose, hooks over his ear, and pulls his muzzle into a funny face. And then his tail ties itself in a knot. And then Tom watches in alarm as a pair of scissors walks into the room. It's got this snipping sound, not unlike the ticking of the guided missile in that Woody Woodpecker. Right. And the music supports it, too. And Tom's terror. Everything just comes out. Terror, terror. Yeah. Yeah. And he's voiced by Mel Blanc here, which is to say he screams and he runs and narrowly escapes having his tail cut off. I remember being kind of disturbed by this as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like I was just scared the idea of I didn't want to see that tail get cut. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, it's like you're watching somebody chop a carrot and their fingers getting too close to the knife. Yeah, well, it's it's real, right? Yeah. Like he get hit by a wrecking ball and be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but cutting your finger with scissors. Ah, yeah, that's yeah. something you understand. Yeah. yeah. So he runs away um, and he hides not inside a chest in the attic, but behind it. And he peeks out 
just in time to have his whiskers cut off by the waiting scissors, which are floating a little high in the air when you consider that they're being held by a mouse. Hmm. The scissors then shave all the fur off the top of his head, and he runs screaming again. He hides in a vase, but he left his tail hanging out, and the scissors cut some bald stripes into it. And then those scissors jump into the vase and begin cutting, and we just see it bouncing all over the place until it shatters. You remember we talked in the nighty night, was it night nightmare hair? Um, yeah. We were really impressed that as Merlin was taking off his horse outfits, the pile kept growing in real time. Like it wasn't right. lazy animation like this. Right. When the vase stops, it just stops on that frame with like motion lines and flying hair just frozen in midair. <laughs> okay. And then it shatters. And we see Tom, who is in an undershirt and just fur cut into boxer shorts. Jerry laughs maniacally, but just then I shouldn't say maniacally. He's actually, you know, laughing humorously. OK, but then the potion wears off and Tom gets smug. He shows Jerry a mirror, which causes the mouse to realize that he's visible again. Then Tom grabs him and the scissors and cuts Jerry's fur into a bra and panties and a woman's hairstyle, which causes Tom to laugh his butt off. And when he sees himself in the mirror, Jerry also has to laugh. Jerry even goes so far as to strike a seductive pose, which Tom whistles at. And then the two of them just collapse in laughter, apparently having reached some manner of truce, though well, we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, this is kind of like uh, Snowbody Loves Me. Uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yes, it is very uh, yeah. similar. They find an accord at the end, even though this one's just born out of madness. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, part of my love of this, I, I, the hugest part, is the weirdness of this ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot of laughing and a lot of crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, I like the premise, too. Mm -hmm. And I like the um, sadistic fairy god mouse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is just like a lot of cartoons we watch where when I see them again, they're actually... They seem quite short, you know, they're yeah. straight to the point. But the end result, I like it. This one wasn't really straight to the point at all. It spent a long well, it, time setting itself up. I and then, guess. Kind of. It, it's, it, it, it felt that way compared to how much time I saw was left for it to play with its premise. Okay. But um, yeah, this is, you know, I'm starting to like these later era Chuck Jones, Tom and Jerry's, which are a little less oh mean God. spirited, you know, where it's right. like there's still, you know, Tom still wants to harass Jerry and, you know, Jerry wants to get even. But they're they're a little bit more good natured about it. There's not like legitimate attempted murder or <laughs> Or, you know, in a couple of cases, I can think of successful murder. <laughs> yes. Huh. So I, I like the idea. hold out. Well, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. But I, I like the idea. And I said this before when you showed me. What was that first Tom and Jerry you showed me? Hmm. Oh, um, dual personality. I think That's the one. Yes, yes, yes. Dual personality. I like the idea that there are these Tom and Jerry's out there that are not 
itchy and scratchy ultra violent. And right. everyone that I see just makes me feel a little bit better about humanity that <laughs> yeah. there are Tom and Jerry cartoons where there nobody is <laughs> nobody's getting blasted into a racist caricature by an exploding shotgun. Right. <laughs> uh, I guess you could see I've counterbalanced the uh, shorts I gave you this week. Ah, oh, but I'm I'm foreshadowing too much. We're we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, yeah. Um why don't we look at something that I like a lot? Oh boy, do you ever like this a lot? Mm. Um you like this so much that I've always felt we should dodge it because <laughs> uh, I don't know what there is to add from what we've already talked about. But here it is, the Dover Boys at Pimento University or the Rivals of Rockford Hall. Directed by, well, surprise, Chuck Jones in 1942. All the best stuff. Yeah, well, well Tex Avery. Tex Avery. Well, you know, you say that. This is sort of like a Tex Avery cartoon is imagined by Chuck Jones. Yeah. Um, all right. So through the title cards, we get Annie Lyle. It's an old melody that kind of goes like da 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 da. It was like adopted by several colleges in the United States, and then narration informs us of Pimento University, PU for short, a proud institution whose most popular fellows include. Oh wait, we're interrupted by a mustachioed, middle-aged man in an old-fashioned bathing suit proceeding through with a peculiar sort of skip. After he goes by, we get our introduction to the Dover Boys. Tom, the fun-loving member, Papa wheeling on a bicycle built for three all by himself. Dick, a serious lad of 18 summers, riding an oversized penny-farthing bike while standing upright on its seat. And Larry, the youngest of the three jerks, er, brothers, bringing up the rear on a tricycle. So that you're imagining this correctly, this is pre-Depression Collegiate America that this is set in. <laughs> so the narration continues, as do they on their rides, that the three are to meet their mutual fiancé, the heiress Dora Standpipe, for a gay outing at the park. She emerges stiffly to the balcony of the ladies' academy and yoo-hoos three times to fully resemble a clock's cuckoo. Then she joins the boys, riding on the handlebars of Tom's long bicycle. All four of them shun the tavern of unsavory repute as they pass it. Ah, but inside, Dan Backslide, the former sneak of Rockford Hall, <laughs> coward, bully, cad, and thief, archenemy of the Dover Boys. He smokes and plays pool, and he stews over his hatred of the Dover Boys and how much he loves Dora, or at least her family fortune. He curses the brothers as they go by, though he's interrupted by that loping fellow in the bathing suit. <laughs> At the park, Dora plays hide-and-seek with her suitors. Tom, Dick, and Larry zealously dart from one hiding place to another before traveling far enough that all three hide under the pool table at the tavern. Realizing now that Dora's unprotected, Dan Backslide makes his move. He finds a car to steal, and he delivers what I think 
is Matsy's favorite line. Oh, man. If there is one, you know, sometimes when we're watching these cartoons, I'll say that, oh, this is burned into my cartoon memory. Yeah. If there is one thing from my childhood that <laughs> will be there until the day that I die, it's Dan Backslide, which is a great name, by the way. Sure. Saying a runabout. I'll steal it. No one will ever know. Right. So much so that when they introduced a transformer toy called Runabout, this right. this was my point of reference for that name. Indeed, right. I think I might have owned that transformer. He's a funny looking guy too, with his green skin and purple. Oh. He's yeah, his purple suit. He's sort of the Joker, I guess. Gigantic um, nose. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, having stolen the the car. He kidnaps Dora while she cluelessly keeps counting for hide-and-seek. When she realizes, her calls for help reach Tom, Dick, and Larry. In fact, strangely, Backslide pauses at the tavern for her to call each by name. <laughs> then the dopey swimsuit man interrupts the story to skip by again. The villain makes his move on Dora at his hideout, but her insanely strong flailing beats him senseless. Meanwhile... A peeping boy scout sees her supposed distress and he runs over land to semaphore with flags to another scout at point blank range. And he operates a telegram to be delivered to the Dover boys. You see, the three of them sprung into action when they heard the cries for help, but then froze into place until the telegram deliverer unfroze them by, you know, by, by relaying the message, help. Um, so they hurry off. Onto the segments of the bicycle built for three, split into three unicycles. And I got a surprise chuckle when this happens. <laughs> when they wipe through the front of the screen, barking like hounds as they pass by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, by this time, Dan Backslide is actually calling for the Dover Boys' help. Because Dora has beaten him so badly. <laughs> when, when the three arrive... They end up thrashing him uh, some more anyway. But then, goofily, accidentally, the brothers knock each other out with a clumsy three-way punch. Now, with Tom, Dick, and Larry, and Dan lying in an unconscious heap, the skipping mustache man arrives and escorts Dora into the sunset. Okay, everybody <laughs> doesn't know this. Have you followed that? Did you get the plot of this? Okay. Like I say, this this... Is Chuck Jones, but it feels like Tex Avery. Oh, it's so I mean, madcap. Some of the things, like, there's a bit where um, Dan Backslide declares that the Dover boys have driven him to drink. <laughs> and then he zips right to the bar to rapid gun down drinks that the bartender's pouring one after another. And there's a bit where the bartender takes a drink, too. It's just like... <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and also this thing, this cartoon is also kind of like Monty Python. Way before Monty Python. Hmm. Don't you think? Because it's got like... Yeah. Well, like it's got different layers to it, right? Like there's the madcap action. There's the ridiculous voices and and faces. But there's also stuff like... <laughs> like portraying this sort of collegiate pride. You know, like the beginning, there's a, it crosses over all these sportsmen and scholars. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um. Now, this is supposed to be a 
parody of um oh shoot the rover boys right it's like a uh, uh a book series from the turn of the century <laughs> but uh nobody <laughs> born after 1950 is probably going to realize that um <laughs> it works on its own and uh i say it's like my python it's also like the absurdest sort of broken comedy of today's internet <laughs> yeah there's actually on youtube a um a collaboration of several YouTube animators who have all like right. animated, like reanimated this cartoon. Right. Like each of them did a different segment. Yes. And they'll do the, like, there's just little things like, uh, <laughs> when they're playing hide and seek, the, uh, Dick, when he's calling is like over here, he's got like a really weird voice. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just full of these arbitrary things, you know, funny faces, uh, animation that all of a sudden snaps into place. Yeah. You know, just what for me, the recreation of course, isn't as good because it's not as coherent, right? Mm. It's a little too mental. Yeah. You know, like it's kind of like I say, when something, when something is absurd, but has no meaning, it's not weird anymore. Right. Yeah. So it needs to be grounded like this original cartoon, but I guess it is what it is, right? These, the, it's a whole genre of things where people, collaborate on animations but all their styles are wildly different and they're all sort of it's kind of like improv i guess right yeah yeah i mean watch it too i guess watch this cartoon and then watch that <laughs> yeah um this is the transition to limited animation mm. um so this was like i think this is kind of like chuck jones accepting oh i gotta do limited animation well let's see what i can do with that then right yeah. so you get funny things like <laughs> Uh, for example, when we see Tom riding by on his bike and then he has that quick one frame snap where he's got the funny face, you know, <laughs> he's got the the, the hanging jaw. Um, and the irony of this is that his his uh, producers were really pressuring him to go to limited animation. And then when he did this, they hated it. <laughs> <laughs> he like went too far or like, you know. Well, it's weird because, like, that is such a useful tool for comic timing. You oh, yeah. Like, like, think about the shot where um, Dan is out and he before he steals the car, he gets like the riding outfit from the trunk and he just right. lifts the package up over his head and lets it drop and it just kind of wipes over him and dresses him. Or, sure. or another good one is when he <laughs> is when he he's trying to get Dora into the car and he like there's he's like posed at the car and then mm -hmm. he it zooms over to him at Dora and then yep. zooms back like that. Like it's hard to explain. You'd know it if you saw it, but it's like just this really quick zooms back and forth where it's not really even animating the motion. It's just kind of storyboarding from place to place, but yeah, with a smear, right? with a smear in yeah. between to show the motion. Yeah. And that's so funny. But at the same sure. time, when it does animate, well, like one moment that sticks out to me, there's a couple of them. Um, there's like when Dora is going down the various flights of stairs and she's just oh, like, yes. she's stock still, but also she like tilts as she turns, yeah. like she's yeah. taking, like she's drifting around the corners like a car. Yes. <laughs> but also the part where the, 
leftover boys have beaten up Dan Backslide. And he's mm. standing there in a daze and they're like, they're like, oh, haven't had enough, eh? And <laughs> and then as they they snap into about to punch position and then he slowly animatedly melts down into this like collapsed heap. And mm. then there's that limited animation wallop of all the boys punching each other again. Yeah, yeah. It mixes so well. Mm. Oh, I yeah. And such good thinking... dialogue, such good, weird dialogue in it, too. Like, like, um, right. One that stands out to me is when the narrator is like when the when the Boy Scout shows up and he's like, it's a faithful Boy Scout. He'll not fail her. I'll betcha. <laughs> For some yes. reason, that line is just really funny to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is it? I like at the beginning where they uh, dump on, is it a pox on Harvard? No, or is it a pox on Harvard or a pox on Purdue? Uh, I think it's, I'm not sure, but I think it's, a pox on Yale, poo poo Purdue, poo poo Purdue. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> or um, and again, the timing of when Dan is lamenting, he's like, "Oh, Dora, oh how I love her." Father's money, right? <laughs> As he's showing off the picture to everybody, just to make sure everybody gets a good look at her. And then tosses it to hang up on the wall. Ah, hangs it up on a uh, muscle man poster on the wall. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. This, this is just like, this is sort of a cartoon with just total freedom, you know? Absolutely. Just like, it's like <laughs> a Looney Tune without, or I guess it's a Merry Melody, but yeah, like whatever, without any kind of constraints of having to conform to a Bugs Bunny formula or a Foghorn Leghorn formula or anything like that. It's like this is something completely new there is nothing there's there's no you know we don't have to have the black cat get a white stripe down her back somehow it's just this is its own thing and anything goes yeah it's it's maybe the most uninhibited chuck jones you know i think i was thinking about his career and how like he doesn't actually animate that many traditional uh warner brothers cartoons Mm. right like he tends to pit Bugs Bunny against not Elmer Fudd <laughs> yeah. and not Yosemite Sam. <laughs> right. Right. It'll just be like a boorish opera conductor, you know, <laughs> or a heavy jowled wrestler, you know, be like these different characters, which makes it all the weirder to me that then he kind of, I guess he found a groove he liked. I'll call it a rut, but I don't <laughs> really like uh, uh, Roadrunner cartoons that much mm. because they do kind of end up feeling very the same to me. Yeah, they very much are. They're all the same joke. Yeah. But I I see what you're saying. Like recently on my YouTube thumbnails, um, some shots of Daffy Duck as a cowboy with uh, the villainous cowboy Nasty Canasta have been showing up. And you can tell just (laughs) from looking at it that it's Chuck Jones, like without even seeing it moving. It's like that is a Chuck Jones directed cartoon for sure. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's a good cartoon. Uh, it's lightning in a bottle. I, I, I'm glad they haven't tried to remake or reuse these guys too much. They have a cameo mm. in Animaniacs, but yeah, 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 that's what I was gonna say. But yeah, you're right. Like they didn't, they didn't make a whole series of theatrical, you know, Dover Boys cartoons. Like this did yeah, all it I, needed to do. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll eat my words. Maybe they're 
have like five minutes in Space Jam 2 or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, uh, well, that's the show, right? We've, we've talked about all good cartoons. Yeah, but I guess. Oh, wait a minute. Well. Wait a minute. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Okay. So there's no preamble to this, really. Um, you gave me a, what is it? De- Freeling de Petit. Pink Panther. For, yeah, yeah. You know, basically, you know, the ant and the aardvark. Not exactly. Pink Panther. But, yeah. You know, that kind of yes, ilk. Yes. I have I have looped to episode one. Yes. Hey, yeah, yeah. There you go. This is something that I wasn't aware existed and was actually a little bit tricky to Google because it's so obscure. Okay. Uh, this is something from a cartoon series called The Blue Racer. Now, a blue racer is a snake. Uh, they are native to the area around the Great Lakes, generally in the United States half, although it kind of pokes its way into Ontario a little bit. Hmm. Um, the idea here is that these blue racer snakes are from the West, which I guess right. is Texas. Um Pretty much just so this can be a Speedy Gonzalez or Roadrunner knockoff. Pretty much. This is 1972, and this particular one is called His and Hers, directed by Jerry, or Gary, maybe, Chiniqui? <laughs> I don't know. Sure, I accept that. Chiniqui. Yeah. So we start with a wife snake, uh, voiced by knockoff June Foray. I, it, she doesn't have a credit in this, and it mm. if it is her, it's a voice I've never heard her do before, which is okay. quite an achievement. Anyway, she has a rolling pin in her tail, and she is searching for her layabout husband, and her three baby snakes rat him out. Daddy snake is sleeping in a log. The wife snake smashes him out with her rolling pin and chastises him for sleeping while his wife and children starve. The blue racer tries to bring his wife a rose from Texas, which shows us how fast he is because you like zoom and then zoom back. Yeah. But his wife wants food. So he races off once more, lamenting his unhappy marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, good start. We got some yeah. we got some good old fashioned rolling pin domestic violence. If only we could get a little racism in here to make everything complete. And hey, wouldn't you know, but a wayward Japanese beetle has made his way into the territory, offering us the finest Japanese stereotypes 1972 has to offer. We got the yep. we got the buck teeth, we got the slanty sure. eyes, big glasses, he knows karate. I do have to say that his pronunciation of L's isn't the worst I've heard in a racist Japanese character. It's not like no, it did. It didn't feel entirely ignorant. No, right? it's His, it's uh, like mannerisms. It's it's like they, because you know the the default way to do it, and there's a Monty Python sketch that is really bad for this. Mm-hmm. Um, is replacing L's with R's and vice versa. Slide lice, yeah, yeah. Because for anyone who doesn't know, there is no real L in Japanese. It's kind of R and L kind of mixed together in a sound. Mm. So it. A lot of times 
native Japanese speakers can have a little bit of trouble with L's because it's not a sound that shows up natively in the language. And that kind of mm-hmm. happens here where he, the, the, whenever he says like, Barack belt, like it's, that's kind of how a Japanese person would pronounce that. Yeah. Anyway, the rest of him is racist enough. So there we go. Hot dog. Yeah. So he's lost. <laughs> he stops the blue racer asking for directions to Osaka. And the blue racer solidifying his place as the jerk in this picture just eats the beetle. So it's one of those where there's a predator who is harassing a prey and the prey gets the better of him all the time. Mm. All right. And solidifying the way that he's going to deal with the jerk going forward. The beetle reveals from inside the blue racer that he is number one black belt karate champion. <laughs> and he, I'm glad you're leaning into this. <laughs> <laughs> well, this. Yeah, yeah there's no other way to do it's it. It's kind of the only noteworthy thing about this cartoon. It's just how terrible the right. racism is. And I, right. I actually looked at the data. I was like, 1972 was how long after World War Two? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he beats up the blue racer from the inside before he pops out and goes on his merry way, which leads the blue racer to comment that it's the first time he's been beaten up from the inside. So I'm glad he and I had the same thought. Won't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> Next, the beetle is flying along and finds honorable signpost with directions to San Antonio, which is 21 miles away. But we can see that the two is the blue racer in disguise. The snake tries to eat the beetle again, but the beetle again karate's him from inside and throws him into a cactus patch. The prickly snake lands near a porcupine who hits on him and then needs new glasses. Transition to the blue racer waiting behind a tree with a big board in his tail, and he wallops the beetle when he flies by. The impact disabled the beetle's wings, so he has to run by using honorable feet. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the blue racer is fast, so he catches up easily, uh, stopping on a kind of board bridge across a across a crevasse. <laughs> when I typed this out, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to say across a crevasse. <laughs> uh, the beetle warns him that the bridge is dangerous. But the racer is confident until the beetle uses his karate chop to perfectly crack a hole under the snake. And said snake falls down into a pond and he can't swim. As he laments who will care for his wife and kids, the beetle can't watch a family man drown and he jumps in to rescue him. The racer is grateful and all the beetle wants in return is Japanese ceremonial bow of friendship. And so the blue racer eats him again with the same old result, albeit with the twist, no pun intended, that he gets tied in a knot. Mm-hmm. Next scene, the blue racer really leaning into the wily e. coyote here uses an acne styled rocket to fly after the beetle who refers to it as a 4th of July stick. I'm pretty sure that the Japanese don't need the 4th of July as a touchstone for fireworks. Fireworks, yeah. Indeed, gunpowder was invented in China, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. The snake is able to steer his rocket way better than Wiley e. Coyote, and the beetle leads him back to the log he was sleeping in at the beginning, where the firework explodes. Just then, 
Wife Snake goes to her children once more, looking for her no-good husband, and is once again informed that he's in the log. She heads in to beat him, which the beetle finds very strange, until his Japanese wife beetle with a rolling pin comes looking for him. <laughs> yeah. The beetle flies off to avoid her, and we're left with an incredible parting joke that I'm actually going to save for the Celery Stalker slogan so you can hear it. Oh, save it for the end? And be okay. underwhelmed. Oh, it's terrible. Oh my gosh, this might be the... It's like, I can't believe that they ended on this note. It's pretty bad. I hope I'm not um, building up too much. So, one of the weird things in this is this better establishes the Beatles' karate than, than the Blue Racer's super speed. Yeah. And further to that point... Why does he need a rocket? Isn't the rocket slower than him? I guess because the beetle's flying. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, it's because this, it's this, because Wiley Coyote did it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> this this cartoon. I don't mean the specific one, but the the series as a whole mm. has a weird relationship with Japan. This beetle is actually his recurring nemesis. Yeah. <laughs> I got that impression. But for only. Yeah. Only for like six or seven episodes. Then he disappears. Hmm. But, but there's another episode where he's in Japan for a race, but he meets a dragon that introduces himself as a Japanese dragon, even though they've drawn him as a European dragon. <laughs> kind of weird. Wow. Um, and there's another episode that has nothing to do with Japan, but incidentally has a image of a kendama. You know, that uh, wooden hammer toy where you try to oh, yeah, swing yeah. the ball into the cups or onto the spike? Right. Kind of weird, right? Hmm. And thinking of, like, the crumminess of the Japanese beetle, who has no name, by the way. He's just Japanese beetle. Well, to be fair, neither um, does the snake. He's just the blue racer. Well, I think he he is the blue racer. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, I, he, I think he had, oh, what was it? Was it Osaka? He says somewhere in Japan. He's he's singing and come from Alabama with a banjo uh, on my knee. Come from Yokohama with a bonsai Yokohama. on my knee. Bonsai on my I thought that was kind of cute. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> not that not that anyone in 1972 would have any idea what that was. A bonsai? Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this is a piece of crap. <laughs> yeah. This is you, you know, I I found a certain amount of charm in the ant and in the aardvark. Yes. But this is just kind of, re it's a poor Speedy Gonzalez slash Roadrunner ripoff that, as you said, doesn't really use the speed and no. anchored my attention just by how ridiculous the Japanese caricature was. Right. You know what led me to this? What? It was, okay, apart from running out of time for a second short, <laughs> um... I, I was looking up Art Davis, the director from uh, Odor of the Day. Okay. For more of his career. And he made a bunch of these. Uh, oh. He didn't direct this one. This one I picked purely for the racism. But yes, he directed a bunch of these. Mm. I guess he's got a career that's just, you know, an animator's career from through the 60s and 70s. He's going to be doing some of these things, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If I understand correctly, this is actually the first Blue Racer cartoon. Yeah, the, it depends. Yeah, but it, it seems like chronologically this one came first. But um, yeah, which I guess makes sense because it's setting up 
the Japanese beetle. Yeah, but um, <sighs> some voice work here. Tom Holland voices the beetle. Not that. Not Tom the Spider Man Tom yeah, Holland. No, not no, that Tom. Because he would have been like he would have been like negative thirty. Um, <laughs> and Bob Holt uh, does the Blue Racer, and he's got a pretty wide career that includes Grey Pape <laughs> and uh, the Shadow Demon from Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, weird. Yep, and the Mogwais and the Gremlins in Gremlins. Oh, wow. Pretty wild, huh? <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I he got the stink of this off him, at least. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Anyway, why don't we get the stink of this off? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, <laughs> next week is going to be roundabout Valentine's Day. And uh, so we're going to look at some cartoons with Valentine's or romance as a theme. Love. Love. Um, Matsy, mm. you have got to watch I Love the Chipmunks Valentine's special. Oh, boy. Mm. The chipmunks never occurred to me as something that we could watch on this. <laughs> okay. <sighs> Yeah. All right. Well, that's interesting. Uh, for you, I went to a similar time. Well, I guess eh, similar time period. I don't know. Desmoifs. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's an episode in the first season, which is I was kind of thinking of one particular scene and I kind of lucked into from the title finding that it was the episode I was thinking of. Because yes. uh, there was a number of different titles that could have been about romance, but this one is the one that I was thinking of. It's called Romeo and Smurfette. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of good Smurf choices, actually. Okay. <laughs> there are. As I was looking over the episode list, I was like, oh, man, that would be a good one. Oh, the one where they pretend that they're on Mars or whatever. Yeah, that's a good one, too. <laughs> All right. So we're going to be looking at some chipmunks and some Smurfs, indeed, hmm. about the same time. Um, in the meanwhile, uh, give us your questions and your requests for what you want us to watch. And, you know, send us some Valentines, too. I'm at Drab Swatch on Twitter. And Micah has a girlfriend, so send only me the Valentines. Fooey, it's open. Hi. We're open relationship for Valentines. <laughs> I'm AC Matsy. And now, because you've been hankering for it, oh gosh, here's that awesome joke from the end of His and Hers as our celery stalker slogan. Fortunately, wife has never laid hand on me. Do you know why? Because male Japanese beetle can fly faster than female. Sayonara! Sayonara!